Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. President Biden gave one hell of a speech last night. If you didn't watch it, you should. And whether you agree with the content of his message or not, there's no denying that it is the best speech of Biden's presidency, at least so far. I mean, he came out swinging. He was honest. He was engaging. He was passionate. No notes. So that's the Joe Biden that you want to hear from. But the speech came at a weird time because it wasn't really in response to something, yet it also seemed to be in response to everything. And what I mean by that is when you hear a U.S. president say things like, As I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. You would think that somebody had just stormed the Capitol or that we were at war. Pundits said it sounded like a wartime address. But he wasn't talking about any foreign enemy. He was talking about U.S. citizens, citizens that belong to a different political party. And normally I would have a lot of friction with that. But I think that a lot of us have become numb. But I think that a lot of us have become numb to the crisis that's unfolding before us. It isn't happening in a big event. It's little things or things more realistically that aren't so little, but they happen so frequently that we just accept them. Things like the ruling on abortion and the extreme and restrictive policies that followed. It's refusing to put limits on your ability to carry a gun after one of the largest mass shootings occurred at an elementary school. It's the president, it's the former president of the United States taking confidential documents, national security secrets with him to his golf course in Florida and getting mad when the FBI comes to get it back. And then it's not just that he's upset, right? But the majority of our Republican leaders in Congress rush to his aid and you start seeing members of Congress campaigning, fundraising with slogans like defund the FBI for doing their job. I mean, <laughs> go back a little bit. It's a former president of the United States claimed that the election was stolen and tried to take out, tried to take hold of our government by force. This is our situation. And as much as I find myself being annoyed with Biden for making a speech that divisive or thinking about how this is going to play for him politically, I just I keep brushing against this idea of does it even matter? And I don't know. Should Biden be trying to soften his message so that more than his own political party can hear it? Or should he be telling the truth? You know, I, a lot of Republican pundits came out and said that this was a divisive speech and a lot of liberal pundits came out and said that it was and said that it was inspiring. Either way, it was a rallying cry. This was a unity speech aimed around unifying everybody against Trump and the extremists that support him. Biden's tired of the bullshit. I'm tired of the bullshit. Conservative pundits have called it divisive and liberal pundits have called it uh, and conservatives have called it divisive and liberals have called it optimistic, but either way, it was a rallying cry. The question is just for who? Was it for the nation, his political party, or both? A summer of primaries is wrapping up, and we're heading into the midterm elections. And I find that midterms are so often more about political parties and the president than the individual candidates that are running. And that puts Joe Biden and the Democrats in a really peculiar situation. Because both Joe Biden and the Democrats had a really shitty first year. But right now, as I record this, we're in the middle of hot Joe summer. I mean, he's passing legislation left and right, most of it bipartisan, and giving Democrats what they wanted, what they voted for. 
the GOP is imploding with crazy. I mean, at the start of this election season, it seemed like Democrats didn't have a shot in hell. And now it looks like they're going to keep the Senate because extremists are running the GOP and people don't want to vote for it. Joe Biden is trying to unite the country, but we've only just begun seeing the results of him uniting his party. Democrats have been all for unity. But what do they actually stand for? Democrats have been struggling with a little bit of an identity crisis for the... Throughout the Trump years, Democrats were struggling with an identity crisis. Who are they? Are they the far left? Are they moderate? Are they pro-business, pro-growth, pro-social justice? pro-immigration, what is it? They spent eight years largely defining themselves by what they're not. They're not Trump. They're not extremists. But Democrats are at a moment where they need to define themselves by what they are, not just what they're not. It's not enough to just not be Trump. You need more if you're going to bring people into the party. And that's why I wanted to have the conversation that I'm going to share with you today. My guest today is Debbie cox Tan. She has 30 years of experience in center-left politics. She's the founding CEO of New Deal, which is a unique national network of rising, innovative state and local elected Democrats working to expand opportunity for all Americans. Debbie's a veteran of numerous political campaigns. She's previously served as the executive director for the Civic Leadership Foundation. And she was on the Democratic Leadership Council for 15 years. She had a lot of different titles, but one of them was the national political director. And she hosts a pretty kick-ass podcast called An Honorable Profession. So I can think of nobody better to have this conversation with. Debbie is energized and excited and passionate about government. And I feel like by the end of this conversation, and it's contagious, by the end of this conversation, you're going to be excited too. She's going to restore your faith in things. I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Let's get started. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Moderate Party. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I want to start with kind of a broad question. How do you feel about the direction that the country is headed in right now? That's a very big question, Hillary. You know, listen, I, there's things that I think are um, looking up and going well, and there's things that I'm super worried about. Um, so on the positive side, I would say, you know, we've had a really good couple months here with... Uh, seeing the government can work again. I think there was a real fear that maybe it was irreparably broken. Um, But, you know, all of the things that we've seen pass out of Washington in the last uh, few months from starting, you know, a little bit last year, even with the American Rescue Plan and the the bipartisan infrastructure deal and more recently the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, it gives me a lot of hope that it can happen, that we can get those things done and B, that these are real investments in our country and in our future, everything from infrastructure to climate to, um, you know, the pandemic recovery. So, um, so on that front, I feel like, um, you know, we've really made some great progress and I feel really good about that. You know, clearly the backdrop of all that is this, um, you know, these crazy times we live, (laughs) just the, the vitriol that's in our public discourse, in our public life. I've been doing this a long time, but I've never seen kind of this mentality where not only, you know, that do you believe that somebody who doesn't agree with you is like somehow, um, you know, the devil incarnate, um, you know, we're also like not even agreeing on a set of facts, right? I mean, we're mm-hmm. listening to different newscasts, but let's getting our information differently. And that scares, that scares me about the future of our country, the future of democracy. So, you know, I think there's, you know, bursts of light and hope maybe, but, um, uh, and I'm proud as a Democrat, obviously, that I think that the Democrats have led the way on some of those things I've talked about. Uh, but, you know, but some of the looming challenges and problems are big and real and scary. Yeah, I mean, honestly, civil discourse is one thing. But when you add in the existential threats of war in Europe, of war in Europe and climate change, that definitely makes things more difficult. War right. In, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, we um, talk about climate change and yeah, I mean, democracy, climate change. Uh, <laughs> you know, sense of a feeling of unraveling of community. I mean, there's just so many big, big questions in this. You know, this, it, this, I really do worry a lot about a couple things. If I can just kind of stay on this for a second. One is, uh, it is that is the, our institutions holding through the series attacks, 
Um, I also worry about whether we're going to continue to get people. And I work with state and local elected officials all over the country. And I am so honored to get to do so. These are people who put themselves out every day. I think there's this public perception that public service is somehow kind of, I don't know, like being a politician is somehow this glamorous thing in some ways. And I know what I see day to day is these people who sacrifice their privacy, who work super hard, and who really to a person have gotten into it because they're trying to make the world a better place. And yet they're, you know, trying to govern this environment where people are getting death threats because they decide they want to have a mass event in their city. So it worries me for our ability to govern ourselves, that we're going to want, you know, to continue to get people running for office that are high quality, um, you know, people uh, who want to try to make a difference. And we see so many of these politicians who are running, you know, to score political points more than to to get stuff done and to compromise. And so that, that worries me a lot too. Um, you know, so I, I think that, you know, there's plenty that's keeping me up at night for sure. <laughs> you definitely are not alone in that, I promise you. Okay, so you've mentioned that you're a Democrat. But I want the listeners at home to know that Debbie is also a moderate. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, yeah. I'll own that badge proudly. Awesome. So can you break that down for me? Because your organization, New Deal Leaders, states very plainly on their website that they're a center-left organization. But what does that mean to you, center-left? And, and how do you think center-left differs from what other people would label as the far left? Yeah, to me, it's, it's really a matter of probably of tone, of um, belief on how to get things done. I mean, I want to say up front that I'm absolutely a proud centrist Democrat, a, you know, radical pragmatic, if you will, who really believes that government has a role to play in our lives and that, uh, and that because I believe in that, I believe I have a special responsibility to make government work really well. And so, you know, I feel like making government work, work better and deliver results for people is, is a, a noble and good thing. A lot of that happens to compromise in the middle. Uh, but with that said, like, so if you think about from the center left to the, even to the far left, I think that on our side of the aisle, there's really, um, you know, there's more that unites us than divides us, I would say. And I think that the principles and the goals we're trying to achieve, I think there's pretty broad consensus that we're trying to help people have better lives. We're trying to provide more opportunity for more all, for all people. I mean, I think so, you know, the good news, I think from a democratic big tent standpoint is that we all you know, there's a lot of agreement on that. I think there's some differences in some important ways um, that I'm happy to talk about. And one is from an electoral standpoint, right? I think that there's a, a probably a divide in the party about the best electoral strategy. I think folks on the left of me certainly feel like, you know, all we have to do is say what we think louder and um, and mobilize more people and just turn out more people, you know, will win. I, I happen to believe that that mass doesn't add up. We have to expand that coalition to win elections. And so, and to do that, you know, you've got to find common ground with and, and have messages that speak to moderates and independents and others. And then I think also there's probably some governing and messaging um, differences too. Yeah, I think the left tends to favor big government solutions a little bit more that government, you know, can solve problems. I kind of believe the government's role should be to set goals and to allow maximum flexibility on how to get there. You know, I much more favor expanding opportunity, trying to try to find public partnerships, you know, and a little bit more of a less big government solution to things. Um, and the third thing I'd say maybe is just the tone piece. But I want to say one thing, if I can, which is um, that I do not equate the far left with the far right. So again, the far left yeah, to me is, yeah. you know, yeah. So just to be super clear, like this is to me, being a centrist does not mean that I'm halfway between far right and far left, just to be super clear. You know, again, far left for me, I, I think we probably have pretty much the same goals and just have really radically different ways of how we want to get there and how we want to talk about things. I think the far right's out to destroy our country and our democracy. And it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I can get pretty worked up about the far left. But honestly, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the insurrection for me with the far right um, and the domestic terror. I, we just There's not really an equivalent on the far left. Like Antifa has never stormed the Capitol. It's like the difference between going to a house party and being very annoying and going to a house party and throwing hot coffee on the host. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, um, 
Yeah. So, so back on the tone, the tone point, you know, I feel like, you know, there are people who, um, who maybe, um, have a hard time seeing the perspective from the other side. Let me say it that way. So essentially like, it's a little bit kind of you're with me or against me. Like if you can't see this, you know, I don't understand what's wrong with you kind of, kind of language that worries me. I think this will be, to go back to my earlier point, if we have to build a coalition that's more broad, I think we've got to be thoughtful and um, fair about some of the questions people are asking and to answer those questions. So if you take any, you know, kind of big issue like immigration, just for one example, right? Like, you know, the people who are saying border security, border security, that's not an unfair question. Like, you know, of mm-hmm. course we want a path to citizenship for all people. Of course we want to make sure that immigrants, once they hear, have the resources they need to become productive members of society to thrive. And there's a fair question about what the right number of, um, you know, of immigrants is in any given year. But, you know, I mean, A, immigrants built this country and their diversity is a strength. But, you know, to, to kind of scoff at people or roll your eyes at people who ask those questions about border security, that's a reasonable question. You know, on election reform, right? We should be able to answer questions about election security as well or like critical race theory, right? You know, you know, which is a, a red herring and a crazy conversation. But, you know, there's probably some, some legitimate questions underlying it for some people, which is maybe what's the right role for parents in education or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a fair question to answer. So. Instead of kind of saying like, oh my gosh, if you, you know, if you don't, if you don't buy this wholeheartedly, this kind of line, and if I have to answer any questions about why that's wrong, that somehow it makes them a bad person, that doesn't sit well with me. So I, I mean, those are kind of to me, I think the probably the three axes I would think about kind of left center. So if I'm hearing you correctly, is it fair to say that you think the difference between the center left and the far left is less about issues or policy positions and more about how the sausage gets made? how you go about solving a problem or how you talk about solving a problem? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, again, I think there are some real policy differences, but again, I think that there, it's more about how to reach the same goal, right? If we're trying mm-hmm. to get more people on healthcare, covered by healthcare, like, is that a government program or is it providing more incentives, right? I don't know how you want to call that. That's a sausage getting made or not, but I mean, you know, it, it does certainly lead to some differences on policy, but I think it's, it's done in a way that is, I mean, I think that the conversation is is actually the conversation that should be happening. That's what governing is about. I mean, that's one of the frustrating things I have, um, you know, back to our, <laughs> our conversation about what's keeping us up at night. But, you know, the, this idea that there's no governing seasonal anymore, maybe mm-hmm. it's a way to say it. Like, you know, again, I, I've been doing this for a while and I remember... <laughs> I'm old enough to remember a time where you campaigned and then you governed. Crazy. It's crazy. Can you imagine? We're actually going to get some stuff done. Like this whole idea that, you know, we're not going to, if we're the opposing party of the president who's in charge, we're not going to let anything through because we're not going to give you that political win. Like that mm-hmm. is a crazy environment to be operating in. And so, uh, you know, I think that that is something that should worry us all. I know there's lots of reasons for that we could get into about how we elect people. You know, I mean, we're seeing it in the Republican Party right now, right? With all the people who dared to oppose Trump being purged out of their own party because of our primary system. That's an interesting phenomenon that essentially our whole structures of electing people between, you know, you've done some work on your podcast on gerrymandering and, um, and how we draw the lines of who gets elected. Um, but, you know, all of those things go into like incentivizing for, you know, people who are on the more extremes of either party. And that really is dangerous because for, um, for, for governing and for getting things done. Okay, so I want to talk about David Shore. He spoke at your conference last he year. He did. Right? He did. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's a little, he was a little, a little pessimistic. I'd love to hear what he thinks now, but he was pretty pessimistic a couple months ago for Democrats' chances. But, <laughs> but he's a super smart guy. For listeners at home that might not know who that is, He is a Democratic data guru. He worked on the Obama campaign. Politico has said he has an audience with the White House. His election models are second to none. He worked on President Obama's re-election campaign and put together a forecast so accurate, it was spooky. It predicted every swing state but Ohio within a single percentage point and called the national popular vote within one-tenth of a percentage point. So he's a big deal. But he's also a little bit controversial because recently David Shore has been making this argument that Democrats are on the precipice of an era without any hope of a governing majority. And he makes two major points that I I want to talk about with you today. 
First, the Democrats are too focused on wonky policy positions and not focused nearly enough on just passing things that are popular. And second, that the Democrats have a privileged white college kid problem. Basically, all of their campaigns are staffed by hyper-educated, hyper-liberal, young people. And that might sound great, but it's sort of creating this groupthink. And it's moving Democrats farther and farther left in a way that hurts their electoral chances. What do you think about that? Oh, I, I mean, I believe I believe David's numbers. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. there's no doubt about the fact that, um, you know, Democrats have been steadily losing working class people for a while. Uh, I mean, I think that that's really that predates Trump. That's, I think, a lot of the a lot of the explanation of why Trump got elected is there are people who just felt like they weren't being talked to. They thought the Democrats mm-hmm. were elitist. They thought that Democrats didn't care about their everyday issues or wanted to blow the whole thing up and try something different. So uh, I absolutely believe that. that. And I also think that, and I don't know if he said this, but I've heard him say it. I think this is right too, that, um, you know, we're also eroding our support with people, um, communities of color, Latinos mm-hmm. in particular. So, um, so yeah, no, I think that those two things are true. I mean, I do think that, um, you know, the, I do think there's a distinction between a everyday dem- so that's true, but it, there is a distinction between everyday Democrat and like the Twitter Democrat. Not that David's saying this, but just in general, like I think a lot of people point to the social media people who are on social media, the Twitterverse, is, is an example of like the people who speak for and represent the parties, and I think mm-hmm. that that's not true. And like sometimes we get all those of us in Washington or around politics. Um, you know, can kind of c- get caught up with like the loudest voices in the room that mm-hmm. to, it, that I absolutely believe do not represent the vast majority of our party or even, the, and certainly the vast majority of our country. So, uh, but I, but no, I believe we have a, I definitely believe we have a working class problem and um, and we, that we are also voting support for communities of color. We've got to, we've got to reverse, reverse those trends if we're going to be successful for sure. It's tough, right? I mean, <laughs> I think that all of this kind of brings us to this question about who gets to decide. Because data would suggest that the affluent, hyper-educated young people, the elites, they make up like 12% of the Democratic electorate. And the majority of Democrats are actually more moderate and more middle class or working class. But that 12%, they make up a large portion of the speaking time. And, you know, they're out, they're loud, they're on Twitter, like you said, and they're dictating the brand or telling the story of the Democratic Party. Ugh. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I think that what we're talking about kind of brings us around to this question about who gets to decide what the future of the Democratic Party is going to be. Because the data would suggest that far-left that those on the far left, the hyper-educated, young, hyper-liberal, that group, it only makes up like 12% of the Democratic electorate, but they make up a very large portion of the speaking time. So what I want to know from you, Debbie, is who gets to decide the future of the Democratic Party? Who makes that decision about who they're going to be? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that... um it's an interesting question because it's hard to to not say, I think, that if you have a president or, or if it's a presidential year and you have a presidential candidate, that the president really is the leader of the Democratic, you know, of, the, of either party. That's the, the de facto leader. That's just kind of how it happens, right? Of what that, what does your party stand for? Well, what is the person at the top talking about and saying? Um, but I think a really interesting thing is, interesting thing is going to happen um, coming up here, which is, and this is, again, something that goes back to the work I do with state and local elected officials that we choose from all over the country, is that we're about to go through massive generational change in both parties, but particularly the Democratic Party, right? With, you know, all of our leaders are in their 80s. Nancy Pelosi's like 80, right? <laughs> She's like 80. Yeah. I mean, obviously. And so, um, you know, and and across the board, not just Nancy Pelosi, but all of the leadership skews much older and frankly, skews much, much wider and skews, uh, you know, and they, I mean, I'm a huge fan of our leadership, um, but, you know, we are due for and it's going to happen soon, you know, this kind of big generational change. And so that excites me, actually, because I think there are so many rising Democrats who 
you know, just represent kind of a fresh, a fresh way of talking about things, a fresh way of thinking about things. I think it's important that we have a party uh, who has leaders that represent America a little bit better. You know, I like to tell this story, like, we, again, we work with leaders all over the country, but um, just in terms of getting different perspectives and leadership, we have uh, a, a New Deal leader who's a state senator in Connecticut, 24 years old. Uh, he's the only renter in the entire body, entire state senate. Wow. So, like, people are trying to make, make you know, make decisions about you know, housing and everyone is coming at it from a homeowner perspective, you know, doesn't understand what renters need. So that's just like one example. Like, I think that's just super important that we have a lot of diverse voices at the table. But I'm, you know, there are so many um, examples that I meet of people like, you know, what, who, what am I talking about? Who would I meet? You know, Pete, who the judge is a, is a New Deal alum. I love how well he did the presidential primary, you know, and how he attracted a whole other, you know, um, just group of people who, thought that he brought a fresh new perspective. I love how he talks about the future, not the past. You know, how he talks about... Winning um, the era. Winning the era, exactly. So, you know, I think he's a great example of something, kind of the future of the party. And there are many, many others that we work with. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I think that there's going to be a lot of new faces out there in the coming years. And, um, and that's good. That's good for the Democratic Party. How do you think that they differ the most from the old guard? Well, again, I mean, I think that there's really a, just a, a lack of diverse perspectives, you know, that are in, that are, that are in leadership. People who are, uh, you know, whether it's age, gender, race, homeowner, not homeowner, sexual orientation. I mean, just so many, you know, just there's just been a, you know, this kind of bring right now, I think the leadership largely brings kind of one perspective. Now, again, not that they haven't done a great job and that they care about those things. You know, I think that, the, but that. You know, it's something different if you it's a if it's a lived experience or, or not. So I think that that's uh, probably the biggest difference. And then also, like you know, I mean, there's another thing. A lot of our younger generation of leaders I hear from a lot is like, you know, the the, the older generation did not have to go to high school <laughs> and do active shooter drills. Like having lived that experience gives you a really different perspective on gun control than if you you know if you didn't do that. If you if you if you really you know. If you really don't um, understand what it's like to live in an environment where that's your reality. So um, I'm hopeful that on a lot of issues, climate's another great example. I think that, you know, there's just a, you know, you probably have the numbers, but I mean, definitely millennials and Gen, Gen Zers, um, you know, just understand climate's a problem. Like, what are we having this conversation about whether or not climate's man-made or, you know, whether it's an issue like the, the ship is sailed on that. And so, you know, that's true on so many different issues about tolerance and about inclusion and about, um, you know, so many different things that I think that their generational change will bring just, uh, you know, a, a different perspective about the realities in which we live, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that to your point about making Congress look more like America, I mean, I think that part of that is just bringing down the age, like you said. But I guess... I think one of the difficult things about that group that you're describing is that up until recently, there was a serious enthusiasm gap in that group when it came to the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. And they're not the only ones. There's been a lot of reporting about an enthusiasm gap in every metric of about an enthusiasm gap all across Democrat all across the Democratic electorate. I'm hopeful that the fallout of the Dobbs decision is going to turn that around, wake people up, shake, wake people up to the alternative. But I think that it still, but I think it still raises the question. Do you think that people are falling out of love with the Democratic Party? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I guess I'd say that, to that that I think people are falling out of love with both <laughs> politics and government and both parties generally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you know that from the rise of independent voters and lack of voting, you know, all of those things. I think people are, you know, for a long time has felt like questioned whether government is the avenue to create change. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that Dobbs, among other things, have activated a lot of people to realize the fact that elections have consequences and elections matter and can get elected and gets to appoint a Supreme Court justice is going to have very far-reaching implications. And that's a good thing to have that kind of, not that it happened, but to have that awareness about it. Uh, 
So I think that that's good. Yeah, look, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the Dobbs decision is a massive overreach. It's a, you know, overturning mm-hmm. of 50 years of precedent. And um, and I think it's got a lot of people really scared and upset that this could happen in our country. And so, you know, I was certainly like the rest of the country, very heartened by the Kansas vote, which I think surprised mm-hmm. a lot of people recently to uh, that uphold upheld their constitution to keep abortion legal in Kansas in a very ruby mm-hmm. red state. Um, and I think that that actually shows kind of the disconnect between the leadership potentially of the Republican Party and the uh, um, and the Supreme Court with kind of where the mm-hmm. country is as a whole. Um, so I think that that you know that cuts well for Demi. Not to that's it's such a it's hard to talk about it for me in political terms because it's like such a emotional and such a uh, mm-hmm. such a like should transcend politics. But you know politically speaking, it's, I think that cuts for Democrats. And that's good, uh, but. Um, but the other thing I would say about kind of if people are falling out of love with the Democratic Party, why would that be? I mean, it does kind of go back to what we we're talking about earlier and the loudest voices sometimes or the or the how the party. I'm not even sure it's the loudest voices. Sometimes I honestly think like, you know, the other side kind of puts words in the, in, in our mouths to like brand the party in a way that they know will be unpopular with people. Right. So like, you Absolutely. know, let's just take one example of, you know, defund police. Right. I really actually don't know anyone who wants to defund the police. And that's not just because I speak with mostly, <laughs> mostly moderates. I think what people are saying when they say that is, again, back to kind of the listening for real concerns or whatever. You know, there's obviously a, uh, you know, a police accountability uh, question mm-hmm. in this country. There's too many black people being killed uh, by police officers. And that's that's true. But there's also like a real concern about do poli- are police officers the people that should be responding to some of this stuff? Are we asking mm-hmm. too much of them? Are they responding to things that, you know, are not criminal or not, that do not make sense for them to be the first responders on? I can understand why a lot of people would go like, look, think about defund police and go, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't, if that's what Democrats stand for, I'm, that's not where I am. And the sad part is, I mean, one of the points I want to make sure I make is, um, you know, I think the Democrats, particularly in some of those, um, that legislation that we were just talking about that passed recently, whether it's, the bipartisan infrastructure deal, or more recently, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has super popular provisions in it. So just to mm-hmm. take the most recent one, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it's got stuff in there about lowering prescription drugs, which is wildly popular, lowering healthcare costs, wildly popular, um, helping with energy costs, specifically like rebates for appliances and solar and other things. All these things are super, super popular. I One thing like to just note in all of this uh, for the, for the, um, bipartisan infrastructure deal i saw polling that after it passed 24 percent of people even knew it passed 24 percent of americans so it hurts so is, much i know right so so part of it is like is it is it because i mean there's making sure we're saying things you know highlighting the ideas that are popular that we're that we're passing mm-hmm. or that we're standing for that we think you know that is that are going to or already having an impact where people live but it's also like even like a step back it's like do people even know what we're doing right are people mm-hmm. are people aware that these things are happening and i mean that that one stunned me that was a a, a poll from our friends over at third way um that's that mm-hmm. found that 24 percent. and this and i think there look there's confusion build back better was confused <laughs> it was a lot of stuff going on at once there was american jobs plan american families plan build back better yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a lot i get it was confusing but yeah, that's on us, right? That's on Democrats to make sure that people, uh, that we keep saying it over and over again, that people really understand what's in it because the stuff that's in it, people are, you know, people like. Well, I think also one of the problems with the Democratic Party's messaging around things um, like the infl- or like the bipartisan infrastructure deal is I think sometimes it can feel like they're allergic to winning. Like Trump will come out and the first 10 minutes of any interview response, any speech is all of these great things that he's done. And a lot of them either he has not done or they were, they were not that great, but it doesn't sound that way. And I think that Democrats have a much harder problem because the bipartisan infrastructure deal, that's a big deal. Like Joe Biden, in my opinion, could have just been like, that's it for me this year. And he could have come out just hyping this bipartisan infrastructure deal but instead, you have members of his own party that'll go on the news and be like, well, no, like, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. But we really wanted this additional trillion dollars. So this 
you know, we're going to have to just do another one. <laughs> and I'm like, that confuses people. That confuses me. Like, is this a win or? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that, I mean, particularly, again, if we're talking politics um, or whatever many weeks from out in the election, like, I don't want to hear anything else. I want to hear, <laughs> oh, my gosh, we did so much great stuff because we did so much. I mean, really, it's like, I mean, if you, you know, look back on history. This will be a, a crazy amount of stuff that was delivered for the American people. We were just talking about those three big ones. But I mean, there was also the, you know, first in 40 years gun legislation. There was, an, you know, and, you know, and to your point, like, then people were like, well, it didn't go far enough. But it was the first ever gun legislation in 40 years. I don't think it went far enough either, but I'm super proud of it. I'm super excited about it. And I'm super happy that it happened. And it's a first step. And so like this idea that you can't, um, you know, that you can't celebrate the wins, even knowing that there's more work to do is kind of the problem. Right. And I, and I, you know, and I think that that it, it does sometimes again, go back to this idea of like, um, just in general, kind of the way that the whole thing is set up our system. It's like, you know, to make score a political point, to make noise, to get on TV, you kind of have to be adversarial. You can't just be like, okay, let's stop for a moment and be like, that was great. <laughs> you know, that was so good. But I think that you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, Democrats would uh, be super smart to spend a lot of the next uh, two months talking about all the great work that has been done uh, because it's really actually an inordinate amount of, um, of uh, policy that is popular and that are, is going to help people. Do you think that the same messaging challenges exist at a state and local level, or do you think it's mainly the National Democratic Party? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that two things. I think that one, because of the time we live in, like, it's, in one hand, it's hard to separate out your brand from the National Democratic brand if you're a state and local Democrat. So it definitely has a impact, you know, and, uh, and on that point, you know, I work with state and local leaders really from like red, blue and purple states. I mean, I've got, you know, the mayor of Canton, North Carolina is a New Deal leader, which is like, you know, um, rural North Carolina. I've got rural, rural Minnesota, coal country, Kentucky, uh, people who are winning in districts that, that Trump won by a lot. And so, um, you know, so for some of them, they're especially acute to the national democratic brand and how it might not um, always appeal to people that they represent and having to distance themselves a little bit. I think we have a lot to learn from those folks because there is, you know, I think it's really a matter of messaging. I mean, you know, um, the work, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure deal um, and other pieces of legislation have a bunch of provisions in there to, to make investments in broadband and healthcare rural areas. Like this is actually, but I think again, some of that messaging is lost. We have to, we have to do but on the flip side of that, so yes, I think there's definitely a correlation in that I think our state and local leaders are acutely aware of what the Demo national democratic brand is and what that means for them. Um, but on the flip side of that, particularly the local level, mayors, counties, acts, you know, people like that, it's a little bit different because you, you know, you're, you know, you're seeing your constituents in the grocery store every day <laughs> and they like really know who you are. And so they're kind of, you know, I hear a lot about how they're, they're being voted on because they, people know them as a person and they kind of have to deliver. Like, I mean, you've heard that phrase, your listeners have heard that phrase, all, all politics is local. It's true when it comes to like potholes, right? Like, you know, if a pothole on your street got filled or it, did, it didn't get filled and you know who's supposed to fill it. So, <laughs> so I think it's, it kind of cuts both ways, right? It, it's yes, there's a, a national democratic brand um, overlay to, to lots of things, particularly the state legislative level. And even some of the statewide offices, but in some ways it's a little bit different because, like I said, it's that the, the issues are so much more immediate and and tangible that you can really hold your local elected officials accountable for results. And that's why I, I mean I tend to look to the state and local leaders as messengers for a politics or representatives of politics that actually should be our national democratic brand because they're problem solvers. They have to get things done. They have to deliver results. And so, to me, that's kind of should be the the goal that we have at the as a national as a, as a national democratic brand right is is understanding that we've got to deliver results for people uh, on issues that they most care that they most care about. And I think it's also where moderates tend to do a little bit better. Some of the most popular governors of either party tend to be more moderate. 
And I think that it's easier for them to hold that middle ground because they're only in charge of one state, but also because they are measured more on what they actually do, not what they said on Fox News or MSNBC. But like, did they actually get it done? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think legislative bodies, uh, although most state legislatures have to balance their budgets, (laughs) the federal government doesn't. So there's a difference there of accountability. But um, but no, absolutely. Governors, mayors. You know, other of those executive positions are, you know, more like the, the president in the sense of like the buck stops here. Um, you know, there's nobody, there's no other place to look to blame somebody or yeah. to give someone credit. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's right. And I think that that does tend to make for more um, moderate, if you will, and I'll, and I'll substitute the words kind or of pragmatic, pragmatic, results oriented for, for centrists in that, in that sentence. Cause I think that's, that's really what it's about, you know, that you have to um, you have to deliver or else you're not going to be reelected. So do you think it's fair to say that local politics are less ideological? In some ways, for sure, in some ways. But again, I mean, you know, yes, because of what we just talked about. But I mean, again, I'm, I'm also looking at the whole national landscape in this crazy political environment. And, you know, I mentioned earlier this idea that, of, you know, the people who won't hoping that people will want to continue to run for office. I'll give a story about, you know, a friend of mine who's the mayor of Wichita, Kansas, who, um, you know, literally was a young guy, little kids, you know, had a, had a really credible kidnapping and murder plot foiled against him because of the, because of a mask mandate. And so now is that so, so yes, on one hand, is he, he's a Democrat, by the way, you know, who's a, the mayor of Wichita and he, he won based on the kind of the politics we're talking about delivering results and, you know, not being overly ideological. So on one hand, you know, yes, I think it's less ideology. On the other hand, here's a guy that, you know, is trying to do what he thinks is right for the country from a public health perspective, who's getting a kidnapping, you know, plot against him because people think that that is, um, you know, somehow anti-American to wear a mask, which is, again, a whole other, you know, <laughs> conversation. But um, so, so, so yes, in some ways, in terms of uh, what they have to, you know, the way that they their way they have to think about things, the way that they think about how they're going to measure speed measure their how they're how they're going to be measured on their success is really about results, and that makes them less ideological. But at the same time, they're operating in a hyper ideological, hyper partisan environment, and that's that's hard. That's hard for them right now. So, like the voters are more ideological, but the politicians aren't. Maybe I mean I mean I think it also depends on where you live. I'm giving you some examples of you know of reds states and red cities. I stand by the fact that most, if not all, people get into politics for, most people get into politics, I'll I'll caveat my all, most people get into politics because they want to help people. I think that that is what drives them to it. But of course they, you know, they're people too and they have, they have, uh, they have ambitions and they have goals and they have things they want to deliver. Um, But, you know, for state and local people really like it, they do have to just deliver, deliver more results. Um, but it doesn't mean that they don't, you know, kind of go into this with goals. You know, it's not, I, I want to make the point, like, when I say not ideological, I don't, I want to be really clear. I don't mean like principleless or, or valueless, right? I think some people think you hear the word pragmatic and that means, oh, that just means, you know, kind of whatever's popular or whatever they, you know, think is going to win them votes. That's not what I mean. I mean, like people actually, there are people who, you know, many people who get up and say, you know, I'm open to the, to whether this is, um, you know, a, an idea that originated as a democratic idea or an idea that originated as a Republican idea. It's just a good idea. And I'm going to implement it in my, in my city or my state, because I think it's going to help real people. So I think that that is, um, you know, I'd love to try to change the perception around kind of this the word centrist and it's yeah. somehow meaning kind of mushy middle or you know principleless that to me is like the farthest from the from the, the for the truth and i think that like if you know if we think about how governing works like governing is about compromise and governing is about mm-hmm. finding a path forward um with a lot of competing stakeholders and interests and that's what a democracy looks like and that's not a bad thing right we live in a massive country it would be highly unlikely that every person in it agrees with you on any particular issue and they also have to live here i, I right. get i get frustrated in conversation sometimes because it's like well if you would just read the report i'm like nobody's gonna read the report just first off people are not gonna read that report but secondly they could read it and still not 
agree with you. But I think people kind of go in. It's like if you just understood the argument, you would obviously side with me. But I think that if you can try to drive legislation from compromise, it's like, okay, we both have to live here. We both have to be okay with this. We don't both have to love it, but we have to be okay. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I was trying to remember exactly what our, we had a speaker come to talk to the media leaders, uh, woman out of Massachusetts who was talking about how to, how to talk to people who don't agree with you. And it was like, you know, her number one kind of takeaway was, you know, you need to ask more questions. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty genius, actually. It's like, well, why do you feel that way? And not in a, well, why do you feel that way? Because you're stupid. But like, no, literally, like really, really, why do you feel that way? What makes you think that? We were having a conversation even about things that are, you know, some of these things are really hard when you're just like, oh my gosh, the facts are like, I can't even, like, that fact doesn't make sense. Like, you're, that's insane. How do I combat that? Um, but I think, you know, just being able to say, well, why? Why do you feel that way? What have you seen that makes you feel that way? Well, let me tell you what I've seen that makes me feel a different way. Like those dialogues just, you know, don't happen enough. And I feel like that's, I think there's a real longing for community in this country, frankly. I think that, you know, we are living in this um, chaotic time. And again, um, the far right is pushing a chaos that's I think they think is good for them, whether it's insurrection or, you know, Dobbs or other things. But, um, you know, I think people just like want to turn it down a notch and like you know we don't want to go back to the 50s say back to the 50s the 50s didn't work for lots of people but if there's a nostalgia for some kind of bygone era i think that it's not about people didn't have rights or people you know people didn't work yeah. equal but it's about which we all want to go back to but it's about oh we could talk to each other there was a shared sense of community there was a shared sense of i've got your back even if i don't mm -hmm. you know i don't even know what party you are frankly like that's right that's not the mm -hmm. first topic of conversation um, that's definitely not where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right because Biden and Trump both ran on nostalgia. And I just, I think that's such an interesting point is like restoring the soul of America or making America great again. Like, that's interesting. Both of those are trying to go back to when something was different. And I do, I think you're hitting on it with we were less lonely. Yeah, <laughs> or, or we were, we kind of... <laughs> Yeah, we, didn't, we weren't suspicious of our neighbor, right? Like, you know, yeah. Or some, I mean, it's interesting you say that about Biden. I, would, I, I haven't thought that before. I think that's an interesting point. Um, I kind of feel like what Biden ran on was, you know, I mean, not that you're not right about it. He definitely talked about restoring the soul of America. I think it was also about, like, making government work again, competence, mm -hmm. you know, like, taking taking governance seriously. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, but I think that that's an interesting point. It's a, it is, there is definitely a, um, we have to restore faith and trust in government. I mean, that really needs to be one of like job number one. I don't know what happens if we erode our trust in these institutions much further, right? I mean, this whole thing that just happened with the Sir John Marlago, and now we have people saying defund the FBI and, you know, I mean, this, it, you know, this is really scary, scary stuff where, um, you know, and I was super upset with, you know, more, even some more mainstream Republicans who kind of jumped on the overreach, you know, bandwagon. Mm. And I would have loved to hear from more people, you know, on both sides say, let's see what comes out. Like, let's mm -hmm. take a breath. Let's, you know, let's, let's see where this goes and let's use our critical thinking skills to kind of, you know, make our own judgments, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that it's like there, but again, and I, I don't know, wasn't planning to, to hit harp on this so much today, but I does go back to kind of the media stuff of just, you know, instant reaction, the louder the reaction, the more chance you have of getting on TV. And so like, you know, of course, both parties want to put their best foot forward on, you know, and I happen to believe again, that Democrats have really just about delivered on a bunch of things that are super popular and we should be proud of it and be saying it over and over again you know but there's also you know a need to um to lead there's a need for mm -hmm. leadership right in this country and and sometimes that is saying something that's uncomfortable for mm -hmm. people but just telling people the truth like and so you know i have a an example of, of that in my mind i've got so another leader we work with is a guy ben mcadams who was the County mayor in Salt Lake County was a member of Congress for one term from Utah, a Democrat from Utah, and was voted out the next term in a very, very tight, closest election in the country. Didn't get decided for for weeks. But anyway, when Ben was um, county executive, he really wanted to tackle the homeless problem. Of course, you mm. know, this whole idea about, you know, not in my backyard, NIMBYism for people to know mm -hmm. that term, and, you know, that 
basically nobody wanted to have a homeless shelter where they lived. And so, you know, Ben was like, you know, so the popular thing would have been to do is to say, you know, don't worry about it. We're not putting it where you live. Right. I get it. You know, but he was like, look, this is a real problem. And so like, Harry, you know, I want to do something about it. It's kind of a long story, but basically the very smart uh, state legislator kind of put him on the hot seat and said, okay, you want something about it? You figure out where these things go. <laughs> you figure mm-hmm. out where, if we give you money, where the shelters would go. And he, and instead of saying, never mind, never mind, he said, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. And he did it, you know, it went in under, it kind of spent some time, you know, touring, even, you know, kind of incognito to see what it was like to live homeless. And, um, and anyway, at the end of the day, he, he, he selected sites and he got so much work and he was, you know, I think, you know, was it clear he was going to keep his job? And uh, because people were really mad about him, he did a number of town halls and just let people yell at him for a long time. And at the end of the day, I really, this is before he was, uh, before he was congressperson, and the day it flipped. People were like, you know what? I really appreciate that guy's moxie and leadership. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a mm-hmm. hard issue. And he took it on. And at the end of the day, like, his, the, when people like had asked about what they thought about him, the, his leadership numbers were off the roof and he won, him a, a, won a race for Congress. And so I kind of feel like that's an instructive story for people, which is like, sometimes that's what being, you know, we can't all be about holding on to our jobs all the time, right? If you got into this yeah. business to be elected, Sometimes you got to take tough votes. Sometimes you got to do the hard thing, even if it's not popular, um, mm-hmm. if it's the right thing to do. And um, and I think, honestly, that people will be rewarded for that. All right, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, Debbie's going to give us some reasons for optimism. Stay tuned. Are you desperate for American leaders who are ready to meet the challenges of our time? An Honorable Profession podcast is here to help. Before Pete Buttigieg, Mandela Barnes, and Stacey Abrams became national figures, they were quietly building better communities at the state and local level as New Deal leaders. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. We're here to introduce you to the next generation of Pete's and Mandela's and Stacey's. Every week, we talk to a future game changer in American politics. We hear about their journeys into public service, and what they're doing to address the most pressing issues facing our communities, from climate change to defending democracy. From free fare transit in Kansas City to participatory budgeting in Atlanta, our guests tell us how they're restoring trust in government and rebuilding hope for all Americans. Tune in to learn more. You can listen to An Honorable Profession everywhere podcasts are found. So I read a lot of the policy recommendations that the New Deal leaders have been working on, and I noticed that a lot of them really center around rebuilding communities, which is especially poignant as we come out of the pandemic. So let me ask you, what are some ideas as far as rebuilding communities go that really excite you? Yeah, I mean, I really actually kind of (laughs) where we started this conversation, but I am excited about about what's happening around the country. This um, influx of federal dollars is really big, a really big effing deal, as the president has said. But, um, you know, from all of those, the, starting with the American Western Plan back all the way down to where we just uh, happened with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. But it's, 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 it means real money. Like in the, in the ARPA alone, the uh, American Western Plan alone, they gave $350 billion to states and localities to kind of with a lot of, uh, I mean, with some guardrails on it of what they could spend it on, but it was pretty wide in terms of what they needed to address coming out of the pandemic. And it's been a really fascinating to watch uh, what some of our leaders around the country have done to to help their community. So we actually did a report that people can see on our website if they want, um, which is case studies uh, of what uh, leaders were doing with that money a year in, and we're actually about to do an addendum to that uh, six months later in September. But we looked at housing, childcare, um, small business support, education, workforce development, and broadband in particular. But I mean, it is, um, and then that, again, there's so many piles of different money that came through the different legislation, but um, there's a lot of really exciting things going on to address, you know, what I think like, you know, the, the def- this is the, kind of a defining moment of my life and career was, I mean, like all of us for the pandemic, but but in terms of government, the 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 real understanding coming out of the pandemic of like 
we kind of all knew these inequalities existed in terms of access to things like healthcare and broadband and education. There were disparities. But I feel like after the world stopped, like it was so apparent the inequalities and whether you were, a, you know, you could work from home or not, whether you could, you know, have your kids do education online or not because you had broadband access. I mean, it was stark. There was no hiding from it. And so um, I feel like we really had this, this really once in a lifetime, if not even more, longer once in a hundred year chance to, to address some of those inequalities. Um, coming out of the pandemic and leaders around the country are doing, like I said, some really amazing things. I think broadband in particular, you know, we've got a, a city, a mayor uh, in Brownsville, Texas, which has been ranked the least connected city in the country. Uh, that's going to be one of the best connected cities in the country because of all the broadband infrastructure uh, investment they're doing. We've got people who are changing the way we're paying childcare workers to make sure that um, childcare uh, becomes available for all people. In places like Vermont, we've got people who are, as we were talking about, addressing the homeless and housing crises. We've got people um, thinking about how to get people the worker training that they need to change into jobs for the future. And so there's just, to me, so many exciting um, things happening that's, that get zero attention because of the loud, uh, what, we, the ten, what we tend to focus on, you know, in the news. But um, I think that there's, um, I think there's going to be a real kind of renaissance, if that's the right word, um, out around the country in communities where, where you know, where good people are going to see a different result. And I'm super excited to bring some of that to people and to highlight those ideas and to, um, to help share them across the country with each other. So do you think that the American dream is in better shape or worse shape at a local level? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think... I guess what I would say is I think that we are finally acknowledging um, that the American dream is in danger <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or I don't know if that's the way to say that. But I mean, again, what, I go back to this idea that, you know, I think that there's a, an acknowledgement of, of so many inequalities and, and not just me. I think leaders, you know, our elected leaders already knew this and we're working on it. But I think that there was a, a more public awareness of this very tangible, you know, quantifiable awareness of this coming out of the pandemic or during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. And so, um, you know, so I'm, I, I think that the fact that there's now kind of a consensus that we have to do something and now there is resources to do something about it, like that makes me hopeful for the American dream. I'm not saying the American dream is in great shape for a good swath of our country. I think that the disparity between haves and have-nots has probably never been bigger. Um, well, I don't know what's our turn of the century, but, you know, I mean, it's pretty bad. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's, I think that there's hope. I think that there's hope that we're going to address, address some of this. So let me ask you in the spirit of combating polarization, you are and a Democrat, as you stated many times, but I'd like you to tell me about a member of the opposite party that you admire and why. Well, I mean, there's, <laughs> I'll take the obvious one because I don't know how I could not answer the question that way. There are more than one, but I, I have to, I would be remiss not to, not to say Liz Cheney right now. Um, I actually had the amazing opportunity to be at one of the January 6th hearings in person. Um, and uh, she is, um, she's amazing, right? She just has, uh, you know, lost her primary uh, this week, uh, in what is, um, a travesty for that party and for our country. But, you know, what I, I mean, you know, I admire anyone who is willing to stick up for their principles, um, in the face of such withering and just relentless, um, you know, pain, basically, <laughs> you know, that, you know, they, she, you know, the minute she decided she was going to say that's what she, you know, the truth, which was what President Trump had done on the leading up to January 6th, um, you know, the, the way the party came off after her and, and abandoned her was just after she'd been a, you know, a stalwart. There's plenty of things I do not agree with Liz Cheney on, whether it's choice and, um, you know, a, a number of issues, of course. But, um, you know, I admire that woman's, um, bravery and honesty and just guts, you know, and I, 
this, I believe she'll probably have a bright future despite her congressional loss, but she's, she's, she's the obvious choice this week. She's the, she's the patriot of the week. It's leadership, like you were saying, right? She's doing what is not popular and having the courage to lose. I mean, this morning I was wearing a Team Cheney shirt and that is unthinkable to me two years ago. Right, exactly, right? This is a woman who is a the Cheney dynasty, the vice president Cheney's daughter, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and who's someone I would never think of, uh, you know, if we go back to those tribalisms on my team. But, you know, she mm -hmm. was willing to put um, the country over, over party. Um, and that's frankly what we should all be doing. I mean, we should be, we're Americans first and we should be uh, partisan second. And she says it over and over again, like the degrees are more. All right, Debbie. Well, I want to be conscientious of your time. So do you have any thoughts or words that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, I will uh, just uh, maybe say again that, um, you know, I hope that people really kind of take a look at what the great things that state and local leaders are doing out there around the country and, uh, and you know, pay a little more attention to that, right? It's, you know, to the, the extent that people mostly pay attention to politics, it's, a, it's at the federal level. A lot of people can't name their state rep or their state senator, which is fair. People are busy. I get it. But, you know, I'll just put a plug in for uh, as, the, as the chief cheerleader for state and local elected officials around the country, like I like to call myself, um, you know, get to know your local electeds. Um, they need the support and they do really important work uh, for people um, in their communities. So I think that that's my, that's my plug for the, to wrap things up, I guess. And to all of the listeners that are feeling as energized by your Leslie Nope style energy towards state and local government, how do they get more of you? Well, thank you so much for that question. So yes, please check out our website, which is newdealleaders.org. And we have, uh, bios of our 200 leaders who work with around the country. And um, as Hillary was alluding to, lots and lots of ideas that people can steal. Um, and I also encourage you to check out our podcast. We have a podcast where we talk to a lot of these leaders um, on a weekly basis and hear not just about what they're doing in their communities, but how they got into public service to begin with. It's a fun, a fun listen. And that's called An Honorable Profession. And you can find that anywhere you get your podcast. And in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Yeah. Of course. Um, Debbie, thank you so much. You've been so wonderful. Oh, it's so fun. I hope so that fun. you come back. Thank you so much. This is super fun. I really had a great time. I appreciate it. All right. That's it for me, guys. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And don't forget to help us spread the word about the podcast by liking, reviewing, by liking, reviewing, or rating the podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, stay safe. Bye, guys.